I, I need to give you a little bit of a heads up. I got to get my teach on this morning, okay? Uh, you preach when they know, you teach when they don't. That's the way the Lord gave it to me years ago. So I'm not calling you dumb. I'm just saying we're going to talk about some things that I need you to see in Scripture a little bit differently than possibly you've ever seen them before, okay? So I need, to, I need you to leave God some room to show you some things you've never seen in his word before. Who's willing to do that today? Okay, great. Fantastic. We are wrapping up our mini-series within the bigger series. Uh, we've been in a run for eight weeks together talking about and answering the question, what are God's friends like? We've established that God is not the author of confusion, and therefore, one of the things he loves to do via Scripture is to help us understand the path he desires us to be on. The best way to study how to be one of God's best friends is to do a simple study or deep dive into those humans who have lived as God's friends. So we spent four weeks talking about four of God's Old Testament friends. Now we've spent four weeks, this is our fourth week, talking about some of God's New Testament friends. And this weekend, we are talking about God's bestest friend. Can I use that word, bestest friend? They're not just best friends, they're bestest friends. God the Father has two bestest friends tied for first place, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're gonna talk about Jesus, the Son, because the Son and the Father were inseparably bestest friends while Jesus walked the face of the earth. And they still are right now and forever will be. There are four points to this message. I had to cut out one because point number one is 20 minutes long. So don't freak out, okay? All three points are not 20 minutes long, just the first point is. All right, so we're gonna have to breeze through point two and point three. The point I had to knock out, because I've been giving you four per week during this eight-week run, was about the Holy Spirit. It was point number two, and it was God's friends consistently cultivate an ongoing partnership with God's Spirit. Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit. If Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit as the Son of God, fully God but fully man, what in the world makes us think we could ever do this life without relying on the Holy Spirit? I can't preach this whole point, but I got to give you my favorite one-liner because I'm not going to get to say it, but I'm going to say it anyways, okay? Think about this. What Jesus was for the disciples, the Holy Spirit is to the believer. I wish I could teach it, but I don't got enough time, okay? So let's jump in. All right, if you got a Bible, Isaiah 53, a little Old Testament shout out, Colossians chapter one, a little bit of New Testament context for an Old Testament pretext. Three points, first one, 20 minutes long. Let's jump right in and talk about Jesus as God's bestest friend. Point number one, what Jesus teaches us about being friends with God is that God's friends understand the importance of God's pleasure. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 show us how Jesus' three-year run of ministry on the earth kicks off. Scripture says this, when Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting or landing, resting upon him. And suddenly, a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. I've heard, and I, I have to out myself a little bit, I've actually been one of the people in the past 
who has said something like this about Jesus' ministry, starting off with the pleasure of God. Before Jesus ever did a thing, the Father was pleased with the Son. Okay, I've actually said that before. I actually completely disagree with myself now. I do. Here's why. Because for three decades, while very few were watching, the Son was pleasing the Father constantly. I'll give you one example. Remember that one time Jesus' earthly parents couldn't find him and they started freaking out? Where was he? In his father's house. Why was he in his father's house? Because he had figured out already as a child, one of his favorite places for his father to ever see him show up at was the father's house. And because the son was and is addicted to pleasing the father, that little boy spent a lot of time in his father's house. Jesus was pleasing the father long before this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God's friends understand the essential nature of pleasing the Father. The ministry of Jesus was initiated by and entirely for the pleasure of his Father. That should be a, a calling card of your life. That your whole life here on this earth, once you went all in with Jesus, is initiated by and all about and for the pleasure of the Father. I'll show you, John chapter eight, verse 29, this is true of Jesus. Jesus said, he who sent me is with me. He's talking about the Father. The Father has not left me alone. They were inseparable. For I always, not sometimes, not most of the time, all of the time, I do those things that please him. Let me try and take a little artistic license and paint a picture of the son desiring to please the father. Jesus is like the little six-year-old boy playing t-ball, looking up into the stands constantly to see the look on his daddy's face. He's not looking for affirmation. He's looking for pleasure. I'll give you a couple examples. The woman at the well. I wonder if it didn't go, a little, go down a little bit like this. Remember? The disciples and Jesus were hungry, so they're walking around talking about lunch plans. What's everybody in the mood for today? Anybody in the mood for Thai? No? Okay, fish again. Maybe add a little curry this time. They're talking about what they're going to have for lunch. And I just wonder if Jesus wasn't completely distracted, looking past the disciples up at his father because he saw a look in his father's face that he had seen before. Something else was going on, and it had nothing to do with lunch. So he says, boys, go on into town, grab something to eat. And Jesus, what are you going to do? My father is looking in the direction of this well right behind us. I'm going to sit there until something supernatural happens. And that woman shows up, and Jesus rings her bell. Why did he ring her bell? It, it wasn't just for her sake. It was to please his father. So here's how I see it. It's as though the father says to the son, listen, son, I know you're hungry, and I know your, your posse is too. Let them go get something to eat. Something supernatural is about to go down that I have wanted to happen since before the creation of time. There is a woman heading to this well, 
and our enemy has convinced her she cannot be my best friend. But I am sending my one and only begotten son to sit with her in a place she, does, she least expects. And I'm going to win her heart over. And she's going to become my best friend. Here's another one that I kind of just see it this way. Lazarus. I wonder if the son didn't say to the father once he got news Lazarus was sick. Father, can, can I go and heal my, my friend? And the father says, no. Lazarus dies. Father, can I go raise him from the dead? Pretty, 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 please? Day one, no. Day two, Father, you know they're going to blame me. Can I go today? No. Day three, no. Day four, Father, is today the day? And the Father says, now. And Jesus went to Lazarus because it pleased his Father. He's our model. And in everything he did, he pleased the Father. We are most pleasing to God when we are most aligned with his will. Now, I have a question for you. Have you ever overheard a portion of a conversation you probably weren't supposed to hear and you were certainly not involved in, but you didn't have entire context to what you overheard and you rushed to assumptions about what was said and also about the one who said it? Anybody ever been guilty of that before? Okay, of course not. Of course not. This is the most perfect church in the history of humanity. You've never done something like that, you little liars. I'm about to read you a verse and passage that in my opinion, without context, is the most disgusting verse in the entire Bible. Without context and understanding, this is going to make you sick to your stomach, I promise, and it, it should anger you. If you're in Isaiah 53, let's read it together. This is a prophetic messianic passage about the Messiah and that he would one day be crucified, okay? Verse six, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on Jesus the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. I love how this is past tense, hundreds of years before it happens in the present. That's just gangster, by the way. <laughs> you didn't even care, it's okay. <laughs> he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, Jesus did not even open his mouth to defend himself. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one even cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. He was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. Now I'm gonna read you verse 10. This is, in my opinion, the most disgusting verse in the entire Bible if you don't have context for it. Yet it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. Without context, 
I'm not going to lie. That verse kind of ticks me off. It pleased you to crucify your son? At the very least, you would look at this probably and go, Preston, this sounds like a dysfunctional family right here. The father was pleased to see his son murdered? That's what it looks like without context. But if you put a marker in Colossians 1, let me give you the context to the pretext. And then this verse goes from being disgusting to be divinely beautiful. Verse 19, Colossians chapter 1 says, For God in all his fullness was pleased. There's that word again. You see it pop up all throughout Scripture, especially the New Testament. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth, watch this, by means of the result of bruising him by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes, Preston, you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now, he has reconciled you to himself through the bruising of his son, the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, Preston, he has brought you into his presence this morning and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. This is the context of it pleased the father to bruise the son. God was not pleased with the death of his son. The father was pleased with what his son's death accomplished for us. The only reason the father was pleased with the crucifixion of his best friend and one and only begotten son was that it was the only way you could have the opportunity to accept God's invitation to be best friends with him. And so it pleased the father to bruise the son so that the two of you could be best friends forever. If you get a revelation of that, it will change the way you live every second for the rest of your life that as grieved as the father was at the death of his son, the result pleased him. What do you do in response to this? I wanna give you three things. Ephesians chapter five verse 10 says, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. How do you respond when you get a revelation of this, what actually pleases the Lord? Because if you would have asked me, Preston, what, what pleases the Lord? In my top 100 things, I would not have said bruising the sun when I was 13 years old. So you have to study. This is, this is what Ephesians 5.10 says. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. I can't give you an exhaustive list, but I want to give you three very important things. Starting with Romans chapter 8, verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We have to start with salvation. You cannot please God outside of relationship with God. I don't care how good your behavior, good your works are, you cannot please the God of the universe outside of relationship with him. That's an amazing thing and not a controlling thing. Here's the second thing. Colossians chapter one, verse 10 gives us number two and number three. Paul's writing saying, we pray that you may walk worthy of the Lord. 
fully pleasing him. How do we please him? Well, he gives two ways, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You cannot please God outside of relationship with God. You will not please God if you're not bearing fruit. You will not. Here's another way to say it. You cannot please God by simply getting saved and doing next to nothing for God for the rest of your life. Welcome to church this morning. I'm, I'm not trying to hammer you. I want you to be the most pleasing to God on the earth. And I cannot be pleasing to him if I'm not bearing fruit on his behalf. But it doesn't stop there. So you got relationship with him, then you've got bearing fruit for him, and then you have this extremely intimate last part in Colossians 1, verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. You cannot please God outside of relationship with God. You will not please God if you're not bearing fruit for God, and you are not pleasing to God when you are not pursuing God. Here's the picture I need you to get. Because remember, this is the little boy who proposed to his wife and said, by the time I die, I'm going to know more about you than any human who's ever walked the earth. Sounds romantic, but it was actually the second time I'd ever said such a thing. At 13 years old, I look the God of the universe in the face, no matter how stupid it sounds, and I said, I want you to know something. I set a goal in my heart, by the time I die, I'm going to know more about you than any man or woman in my lifetime. And I wasn't talking about a theology degree. I was talking about intimate understanding of the one who would become my best friend. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Here's the picture. The closer you get to God, the more you want to learn about God. The more you learn about God, the closer you want to get to God. The closer you get to God, the more you want to learn about God. The more you learn about God, the closer you want to get to God. The, more, the closer you get, the more you want to learn. The more you learn, the closer you want to get. This is how I want to roll for eternity. I've already told you, I have one goal in heaven, to be the most annoying one in heaven or on earth. I'm going to follow him around unapologetically. See, in this life, I'm restrained from being able to completely chase after him. There are boundaries and limitations. But on the other side, oh, trust and believe. None of you are getting in my way. And I don't care how much it annoys him. I'm pretty sure it won't. Because my pursuit of him won't stop when my life on this earth ends. In my opinion, we've only just begun. And here's how romantic it is. He says, Preston, you wanna know one of the reasons why it's forever, not just until you die? Wanna know why my kingdom is eternal? Because I want you to be able to spend forever learning about me. And just so you know, Cupcake, you could spend eternity learning 
everything you can learn about me and you will never come to the end of what can be known about me. And so we set a goal as the friends of God to increase in the knowledge of God. Here's point number two, told you, 20 minutes in, we're in good shape now. Point number two, the second thing Jesus teaches us about friendship with God is God's friends understand imitation is so much more than flattery. John chapter five, you can turn there if you love to see it in your own Bible, I'll give you context. Jesus is at the pool of Bethsaida and there's a man who's been infirmed, ill, for 38 years. Jesus comes up to the man and he says, want to get well? One of the most gangster questions in the Bible. You know how many hours of pastoral counseling I could have saved me and those on the other side of the desk if I just would have let off with that question? Do you even want to get well? Or do you just want to come back next week and talk about all the same stuff all over again? Jesus says to this guy, gangster question, do you even want to get well? And this guy goes, I do. Jesus says, okay then, stand up. Pick up your mat and walk. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the man does. Absolute miracle. The Jewish leaders of the day are, are surrounding this little moment in time. They start freaking out. And so they say to Jesus, how can you tell a man, here's the context for John 5, this is all happening on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders say, how could you tell a man to work on the Sabbath? Jesus drops a dime as the sun. He says, listen, cupcakes, Preston's paraphrase, of course. Listen, cupcakes. Let me help you understand how something like this works. My father is always working. And therefore, so is the sun. It's a moment. Well, they're freaking out, trying to trap him. Watch what Jesus says next, verse 19. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. He goes further on this little father-son, son-father teaching. The son can do absolutely nothing by himself. Can you imagine if every follower of Jesus Christ believed that truth right there? If Jesus couldn't do anything apart from the Father, what on earth makes us think we could ever live a day trying to live without him. I'll tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. The son does only what he sees the father doing. Watch this, whatever the father does, the son also does. I'm about to give you a theological truth that might shock some of you. Jesus was the greatest copycat in the history of humanity. He's a copycat. And he told us as much. Preston, let me help you understand the key to my life as the son. I do everything I see the father do. Whatever the father does, the son does too. My father's always at work, then so is the son. Imitation isn't the highest form of flattery. Imitation blows flattery out of the water. Let me try and illustrate this for you. We have three biological children, and then we have a bonus child right now 
who's four and a half years old, and over the next 30 days, we'll know um, what's going to kind of happen with that, whether it's forever or not. And uh, I've, I've admittedly, before you all, kind of done what I always try and do, bring you along in the journey, uh, rather than try and live on some kind of pedestal. And I, it, it's, it's no surprise or secret uh, for Holly and for me over the last four years, there's been a lot of Garden of Gethsemane moments. We are two years away from being empty nesters, which is the plan I laid out when I proposed to her. We would be empty nesters before 50. I'm 45. She's two years older than me. The plan was working swimmingly. Until late one night, a stork dropped a six-month-old on our doorstep. And my best friend said, will you please do this for me? We don't resent the boy. Our family of five has fallen in love with this boy. And it appears as though he might have fallen in love with us too. One of the things he does because of the path he's been on, he sees a therapist. And his therapist the other day said, we're gonna transition your therapy to another place. They have horses there. It's called equine therapy. So the therapist starts explaining it to Maxon. He gets in the car afterwards. He's all excited. He says, Mom, it's just the two of them, I have to get cowboy boots just like Dad. <laughs> now, you know he's been in my house for more than half of his life. Remember, Pretty Press was my nickname in college. It's a little bit of, of me has rubbed off on him. He didn't stop at cowboy boots. Mom! and I need a cowboy hat just like dad. And he didn't stop there. And I need cowboy pants just like dad. And I need a cowboy shirt just like dad. What is the four-year-old saying? There's someone I've fallen in love with. And one of the ways, one of the best ways you can say I love you is I want to be like you. They get home, I get home from work, go into my room to change, get comfortable. Maxon comes into my bedroom, goes right to my cowboy boots, size 12, far larger than his feet at four and a half years old. They're so big he can't pick up his feet, so he does this. And he goes over to my cowboy hat. Dad, look, I'm a cowboy just like you. Do you understand? This is exactly how Jesus rolled with his father, and he still does. Preston, I need you to understand how much I love my father. I want to be just like him. Cowboy boots and cowboy hat and all. Imitation is not flattery. Imitation is what the father created us for. We were created to imitate the one in whose image we were made. This is what his best friends do.
They set a goal that I'm going to look more like you tomorrow than I did today. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, imitate God. Preston, this is what you were made for. Imitate God in everything you do. Why? Because this is what his babies do. Preston, I'm setting you in the greatest family humanity will ever know. And I want you to understand one of the highest roles I give my children is imitating me on the earth. Get you some cowboy boots, son. We're going to go for a ride. 1 John 2, 6 says, He who says he abides, Preston, if you say you're intimate with him, you say you abide, you ought yourself also to walk just as he walked. Do not tell me you're close to him if you look nothing like him. Oh, we're so close. Oh, I'm just on a hot streak in the secret place with the God of the universe. Then how come every time you come out, you're a bull in a china shop? Running roughshod over people Jesus died for. Oh, we've never been this close in the secret place. Then how come when you come out, your mouth is completely unrestrained and you say whatever you want to say? Oh man, had such a rich time alone with the Lord this morning. Then why in God's name are you gossiping the way you are about one of his favorite humans on the earth? Imitation is the highest form of flattery. That's a joke. Imitation is part of our purpose as his children. This whole find who you are thing, I think is just a demonic cover-up to keep us from imitating the one in whose image we were made. Be the true you. No, that's not the call on my life. The call of my life is to be like the one who is the truth. God's friends understand. We were created to imitate the one in whose image we were made. Here's point number three. Got to roll through this quick. God's friends get away often. Jesus teaches us, us this time and time again via scripture. God's friends get away often to be alone with their best friend. If you feel like I've stepped on a few toes thus far, I'm about to break the toes. Because admittedly, in the past, I've taken a very soft stance on this. And as I get older, I don't desire to take that stance any longer because I've learned it doesn't work. In my opinion, this is an inarguable fact of friendship with God, that the friends of God consistently spend time alone in prayer with God. This is sacred. Alone time with the God of the universe is sacred to me. Want to know why? Because my time with the Father cost the Son his life. And I cannot go in to be alone with the God of the universe acting like it's no big deal. 
I couldn't go in without the blood of his son. So I walk in every time knowing this is holy simply because of what it cost his one and only begotten son and best friend. I want to show you five different ways Jesus got away. First, Jesus got away all the time. Luke 5, 16. Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. It was his habit. Getting away to be alone with his best friend, the father, was his consistent habit. Why? Because consistency is an essential component of intimacy. A relationship built on five-minute connections every third day is a relationship which is incapable of true intimacy. This is the stance I've been soft on. Well, Preston, it's not about quantity, it's about quality. Try that out in your marriage. Only talking two or five minutes out of every four days. Let me know how it goes. Let's see how long you can pull that off before divorce. I know of no relationship that is healthy that can live off of five minutes every three days. So if it won't work in my marriage, why would I ever impose it on my God? When I talk to young leaders, you know, I try and work stuff like this into a message every once in a while because part of my job is, is, and our job is to raise up the next generation. Uh, young leaders love to talk about the size and scope of their calling. I did too when I was that age. And here's, I ask questions when they start talking about how big their calling is. And one of the questions I ask is, in a typical week, how much alone time do you spend in prayer with God? Well, Preston, I mean, we've got such a thing going right now. Our relationship is so dialed. It really isn't about quantity. It's about quality. You know what you just told me? Your perspective of your calling is little. That your call is small. Here's how I know. Because only when you actually start to get a revelation of the call of God in your life, do you start running into the secret place, begging the God of the universe to help you walk it out. And from my experience, that conversation lasts a lot longer than five minutes. I'm not trying to harp on anybody. Yes, five minutes is better than zero minutes. But you can't be intimate off five minutes every four days. You can't. Preston, I want to be closer to God. Okay. You spend more time watching your favorite show than you do talking to your God. So do I. But I don't want to. You don't need five hours a day alone with God. Okay, let me, let me just establish this. I'm not saying you need to wake up every day at 3 a.m. so you can get in five hours before you head into the office. What I am saying is, if you more regularly started spending 60 minutes alone with the God of the universe, I think we might see you turn the world upside down. Preston, how, can, how could you know such a thing? Look at what you've been able to accomplish with five minutes every four days. Listen, I believe in you probably more than you believe in you. 
But more than that, I see what my best friend has asked you to do with your life, and I might have a different perspective than you do. It's a lot bigger than you can wrap your finite mind around. And five minutes every three days ain't gonna do it. I laugh because Brent, been on staff four weeks, comes and preaches an absolute fireball of a message. It wasn't because he's got a gift, though he does. But that's not why God allowed him, in my opinion, to stand under more oil than maybe God's let him ever stand under in his career so far. That was oil you saw, not gifting. It was anointing. And in my opinion, here's why. Because for two weeks before the sermon, he prayer walked the chairs in this room and laid on his face at this very altar, crying out on the name of the Lord. Don't tell me your calling is big if your time alone with him is small. Jesus got away often. Second thing, I gotta hurry up, I'm behind now. I got excited about that one. Jesus got away to get away from it all. Anybody ever wanna just get away from it all? Yeah, let's put our hands up high. We're in a very special club. Yeah, yeah, anybody ever wanted to get away from the person sitting next to you? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Don't raise your hand. Luke 9, verse 18, one day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Why? Because Jesus knew one of the safest spaces in all the earth is away from them, alone with him. I'm trying to give you the cheat coat to my life, many me. I might not be talking to all of you, but I am talking to the young man. Listen, little press. What's ahead is harder than you can wrap your mind around. And if you don't cultivate the most intimate of secret spaces, you are done for. So get to work today. Especially on the days where you want to get away from it all. Here's the third thing Jesus did. Jesus got a way to process big feelings. I don't have enough time to really do this justice. Mark chapter 6. The beginning of Mark chapter 6 is the beheading of John the Baptist. And the very next verse in scripture is that Jesus wanted to get away to pray. Just my personal opinion, I think it's possible the news had already reached Jesus. Remember, there can be time which elapses between one verse and another verse. Just because they're butted up next to each other doesn't mean they happen seconds apart. I think it's possible the news had already gotten to Jesus and Jesus needed to get alone to be with his father to process some really big feelings. Then what happens? Jesus tries to get away to pray. Thousands of people start following him and they're starving. The disciples say, Lord, they're hungry. We can't send them away. What do we do? Jesus says, feed them. We know the story. Probably around 20 plus thousand people were fed that day from a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread. But I want to read to you what happens after everyone eats their last bite. Verse 45 of Mark 6. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Get the picture. Jesus goes, you know the disciples were like, this is amazing, this is the best day so far. And Jesus is like, get in a boat and get away from me now. 
go to the other side. I need alone time with my father. Then he turns to the crowd and scripture says he dismissed the whole crowd. Thank you for being here. Hope you enjoyed lunch. There will be no miraculous dinner tonight. All of you can go home. And what does Jesus do next? And after that, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And again, just my opinion. But I think it's possible that the number one topic on the docket is, Daddy, I need to process what I'm feeling about my cousin and best friend being beheaded. Why don't we process our feelings with the one who created all of our feelers? I'm not saying don't talk to a counselor. I do, you should too. Here's what I would say. Just make sure you always involve the one who created all your feelers in your biggest conversations about the biggest feelings you're feeling. I believe Jesus got away to pray and process his feelings with his best friend and daddy. Here's the next thing, Jesus got away before big choices. Luke chapter six, verses 12 and 13. One day, soon after, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be his apostles. I wonder if Jesus wasn't wrestling with his father all night over Peter. Are you sure, Father? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Peter's going to chase me down when I get to heaven. What does it say if you rarely pray about the biggest choices in your life? On the other side of that coin, what does it say when you refuse to make the biggest choices in your life without first praying about it? One of the biggest decisions Jesus would make, who would be the 12 that run with me, and then after I'm gone, would be sent out by the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth to build out this kingdom. And the decision was so big, he stayed up all night. Question, when was the last time you or I stayed up all night long praying about anything? Jesus got away before big choices. Then here's the last thing. Jesus got away before big moments. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them, the three, to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. Verse 39. Jesus went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus was about to steward the single most significant moment in all of human history. And what did he do before the first step of the journey to that hill? He got alone with his daddy. The bigger the moment God asks you to steward, I'm going to use direct language here, the more your butt needs to be in the secret place for more than just a moment. If that offended you, I apologize. I just want you to remember it. 
God's called me to big things, then you better get in that secret place and spend big time. Jesus got away all the time. Why? Because that's what best friends do. I talk to my best friends far more than I talk to most of you. It doesn't mean I love them more than you. It just means we have a different relationship. If the Father followed you around all day, every day, and based your friendships around the amount of time you spend dedicating it to it or them, who would God say your best friends are? Instagram? Money? Success? Sex? He's not trying to beat you down, but you do need to see the look on his face. I'll personalize it just like I want you to. I don't want there to be anything on this earth you desire more than me. Preston, it's okay to like this and that, but I don't want you to love anything more than you love me. I'm the God of the universe and I could have anything I want at any time and I want you to know one of the things I want more than anything is to be best friends with you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Somebody cornered you right now in this season of your life. And said, why do you exist? Why are you here? Why did the creator of all things choose to create you? What would your answer be? It would be easy for me to say, and I got asked this question yesterday. My own brother said, Preston, why do you exist? Why does God have you here now? To be honest, I looked my brother right in the eyes, crying, and I said, Brad, by the time I die, I'm going to bring more best friends to my best friend than any human ever did in my lifetime. And it was a sweet and powerful and holy moment. Until I got home last night after preaching and using it as my closing illustration. And my best friend said, Preston, you answered incorrectly. The number one reason I created you wasn't to bring me more best friends. 
the number one reason I created you was to be my best friend. And that is the number one reason he created you. The God of the universe wants to be best friends with you. And he is here right now. The spirit of the living God is present and active in this room. If there's any obstacle that keeps getting in the way of your intimate fellowship with the creator who created you to be his best friend. Right here, right now, do something about it. Don't just come to church to get something. He wants you to give him something. Well, what does the Lord want me to give him? I think one of the things at the top of his list is that thing which most keeps getting in the way of his intimate fellowship with you and your intimate fellowship with him. So do something about it. God, thank you for being present in this place. If the most famous or powerful person on all the earth were in this room right now, everybody would think this room was a really big deal. And yet there is one immeasurably greater than all of them combined. And he is present in this place right now. Now is not the time for games. Now is the time to put away childish things. His invitation to you for you to be his best friend, cost him his bestest friend's life. Father, would you help us take this more seriously? And Holy Spirit, would you help each of us? Would you empower every one of us to grow in the intimate knowledge of God. And would you empower us to live more like our daddy? In Jesus' name, amen.